The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I am Molly Balin. And I am Eric Deutsch. And we welcome this week a man who's routinely putting on the Ritz, Walt Murray from the Wilder Ride podcast. Hey, how how are y'all tonight? Good. Thanks for coming to our prison. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, prison's not usually my favorite place, but uh, (laughs) I'll I'll make an exception tonight. (laughs) So we are in magical minute ten, and Man, in is it the... double digits. Are we done yet? Oh my god! But it is kind of a, a milestone. Yeah. There's no there's no words we have to read. We're we're actually in the movie. It's it's good stuff. Yeah, and you get into all the great '80s electronics and um, all the crazy Hollywood garbage that they bring in. So this, uh, yeah, y- y'all are in some exciting times in this movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. we got a good minute here. Uh, we open up with. Uh, Bob Hauk introduction, getting out of his limo, and the minute ends uh, with uh, Hauk and Remy walking in the control room as an air traffic controller is contacting Bayonne to tell them there's a mayday in restricted space. So uh, the we're, we're starting to get into the plot now here in minute 10. And before we actually jump into the minute, I have to issue a correction on something I said last week. In minute, I believe it was minute 8, Molly, when we were doing that thing where I was listing off... Um, other actors born the same year as Kurt Russell, so people could envision alternate histories where different people star in this movie. And mm-hmm. I accidentally said that the year that these people were born was 1962. I have no idea why I said that. The correct year is 1951. Uh, so in case anybody listening was like, these people don't even know when the hell their star was born. Why am I listening to the show? Uh, I, 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 it was a slip of the tongue. It's 1951. All those people I named, including Kurt Russell, were born in 1951. So there's my correction. But he looks very young and tender, so it's yes. very, very easy yes. to shave a few years off. So, <laughs> yeah, Just I was going to say I'm kind of surprised uh, that I'm. He seems younger than that, but uh, I guess facts are facts. <laughs> <laughs> he seems like he was born in 1962. Maybe that's why I, I said that. Doesn't he? He seems like a child of the 60s. Yeah, I mean, I I I am stunned that he's old, that Kurt Russell is almost 70 years old. I mean, that is. Oh my god. Yeah, that's crazy for so yeah. many reasons. <laughs> well, and not to back up too much, who were some of the other actors that were born that same year? Uh, okay, uh, I know Mark Hamill, which is another one that blows my mind. Was it I Robin remember- Williams? Yeah, Robin Williams, Fred Berry. <laughs> I remember Oh my saying. gosh, I shouldn't have asked. Now I'm feeling really old. <laughs> <laughs> These are all the actors I grew up with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's get to minute 10, uh, and as I as I said, uh, it starts with Hauk getting out of his limo, and we actually saw the limo the last few seconds of the previous minute, uh, but this is a cool limo because this limo has some history. This is a 1977 Lincoln Continental stretch limousine, and this specific car has been used in about 40 movies over the years, and in addition to this one, the two that stand out to me are Roy Wally's limo at the end of the movie Vacation uh, when he shows up to Wally <laughs> oh, World. Oh, yeah. Yep. yeah. And the limo that Bruno Kirby is driving in Spinal Tap. So good. <laughs> oh, that car does have a storied history. Yeah. Oh, this is an awesome car. 
Well, I love the that car. You know, for one thing, just the those old, big, clunky American cars that just drank gas. Mm-hmm. But I also like that even though it's got all that room and a gigantic trunk, it's still got the luggage rack on the on the <laughs> trunk. <laughs> I mean, I don't know where they were planning to take that thing, but you could pack for a year. If you're in a nice limo like that, you don't want to be sharing space in the limo with your stuff. So that means it's only going in the trunk. Oh, that's a good point. And, you know, if you're if you're, uh, you know, in that limo, you might have a lot of stuff. You got the money for that limo. So, you, you know. I, I could see that. that well, I guess if, yeah, if you brought your crew along and all their stuff. Uh, uh, that's right. You might not be the only person in that limo. There could be it's eight true. people. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, and so then emerging from the limo, uh, we get um, one of our uh, main characters in the movie, uh, Bob Houck. He is the warden of the movie. And he is played by the classic old school Hollywood tough guy, Lee Van Cleef, most famous for uh, lots of westerns and spaghetti westerns. Yeah, and he was actually in a couple of my favorites. Uh, you know, because he was in uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, mm-hmm. and yep. um, and that whole series. And I I love that series. In fact, I've got the theme song of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly on my iPhone, and I've that has always been a favorite for me. So the minute he walks in, I'm always like, yes, this is getting good. <laughs> and for anyone that might not know, that's that's the do 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 do. Yeah, I'm glad you tried that because <laughs> I wasn't about to. <laughs> so good. He made his debut actually in High Noon, which is one of the most famous westerns ever. Um, a western that I know him the most from is the man who shot Liberty Valance. He plays uh, one of Liberty Valance's henchmen. He, I mean, even the tons of TV he did was mostly westerns he was in episodes of bonanza and gunsmoke and rawhide so i mean you know this this was this guy found his niche and uh, he really went with it and had a very solid career he did he was also in gunfight at the okay corral which was um one of my favorites and uh he his career is almost like a history of great hollywood westerns uh, actually um kurt russell's dad bing russell had a small part in gunfight in the okay corral I wonder if they knew each other. That's an interesting tie-in. Interesting, yes. I just think it's kind of interesting uh, about, and, and I'm kind of skipping ahead to, you know, obviously Lee Van Cleef is no longer with us, but the inscription on his grave marker is the best of the bad. And I think that's just such like a complete oh, badass wow. thing to have on your gravestone. So awesome. That is a, that is a great, great tombstone. And uh, I am not a fan of this group, so I don't know this song, but uh, the group Primus has a song actually called Lee Van Cleef. Oh, I didn't know that. I guess I'll have to listen to that on the way home. Mm-hmm. You know, I probably should have listened to it before we recorded, so I could have talked about it, um, but I didn't. So, <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, for any, uh, some more Lee Van Cleef uh, trivia for everyone, any, uh, any of the Star Wars EU fans, apparently Lee Van Cleef is the inspiration for the character Cad Bane in the Clone Wars cartoon. Oh, huh. That kind of makes sense, I guess. I never realized that. Yeah, I, I don't watch the show. I'm strictly a movies guy for Star Wars, so um, I only know that I've seen, you know, I know what the character looks like, but I don't know anything about him as far as characterization. Yeah, my kids were growing up as those cartoons were coming out, so I mm-hmm. ended up watching quite a few of them. 
Uh, that that does make sense. That I, I can see that now. I never put those two together, but that does make sense. Uh, and so he is playing Bob Houck. He's the warden, and um, we uh, we've got some. You know, much like we talked about last week about Snake, the movie does not give much background about Snake, and the movie does not give really really any background about Bob Houck. I mean, we just see he's kind of a a tough warden. We don't really get much about him. So once again, uh, we can turn to the novelization of the movie. Uh, and I realize I've been I've mentioned this a couple of times before, and I haven't even mentioned the author. His name was Mike McQuay. He was a science fiction writer. And the book uh, gets lots of uh, information about Bob Houck. He is a disillusioned war vet also, just like Snake is. And he actually almost never comes to the prison. He specifically came to the prison to meet Snake because Snake is famous. And he feels the two of them may have some kind of kinship. That actually clears up a big point that we were trying to figure out last week molly when we weren't sure why everybody was staring at snake as he walked down the hall oh yeah we thought maybe the movie was playing with time that maybe you know the 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 plane situation had already occurred uh, but it turns out no it really is just that snake is very well known and uh, everybody wants to get a look at him oh that's interesting he's just that infamous oh yes. that makes a lot of sense yep um yeah speaking of novel um I find it really fascinating that Bob Houck has earrings or earring. Speaking of the novel, the character actually does have an earring as well in the novel. And uh, as he survived Leningrad, uh, the way sailors used to get an earring, they'd show that they'd survive a a shipwreck. However, in the novel, the earring is in his right ear, not the left. So I think it's interesting that there is a a tie-in with that as well. Um, And speaking of Navy, Lee Van Cleef is a veteran of the Navy, of World War II. Uh, so, and Donald Pleasance, who we'll talk about here in a couple of min- minutes, will um, is also a vet of World War II as well. Uh, but uh, Lee Van Cleef was assigned to a submarine chaser and then to a minesweeper. Um, and submarine chasers were uh, designed specifically to destroy German submarines in World War One and Japanese and German submarines in World War II. Uh, so these are the guys that use the the depth charge, and they also carried machine guns and anti aircraft guns. So, um, and the minesweeper is uh, a vehicle that would sweep for mines. So, Lee Van Cleef really is actually a badass. I was, was going to say, in, that in is real life. A, he is a serious badass. That's some <laughs> tough, tough work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, when you hear that, you know, the background histories of some of these people, and then you see the roles that they went on to play for the bulk of their career, and clearly his background there in the armed forces informed you know, his career, his acting career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he does have a, I mean, I think it's interesting to be an actor and have somebody perceive you physically as a villain. You know, you have a villainous look to you, even though internally you're, you know, really nice guy. But I think it's interesting that his background is somebody who, you know, really, like, to be frank, saw some shit in war and how that's probably translated as a, a really rough and tough character for you know the majority of his career is quite interesting to me. Uh, uh, Walt, I've never actually seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Is he a, is he a bad guy in that movie? He is. He he is um, kind of the arch nemesis, I guess, uh, to Clint Eastwood's character, and he's he's definitely playing that you know rough plainsman, worn out, grizzled, sun soaked, uh, tough guy. 
And he's he's the perfect person for it. I don't even know that he's acting that much. <laughs> he's just being himself, and it's perfect. <laughs> well, and it's I mean, he his character in this movie is I mean, he's not the villain of the movie, of course. You know, the Duke is the villain of the movie, but he's not on Snake's side either. You know, he's he's using Snake to achieve his goals. Uh, mm-hmm. He's basically looking at he's got a job to do, which in a few minutes of movie time we'll find out what that job is and he's going to just use whatever he can is necessary to get that job done so he's more i guess he's snake's foil maybe would be the term Mm. he's not the movie's antagonist though no but it is interesting the way that they present him and it sounds like they present him the same way in the novelization that he i mean number one how many wardens ride in in a limousine but (laughs) <laughs> so so he kind of comes in with that sort of presence but then he's also dressed completely in black and he he has that rugged tough um badass mentality that you don't get from a normal uh, minion of the government you know he's not an administrator this guy is an enforcer he really presents as a very interesting character here and that's interesting that 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 impression comes across because also in the novel, this is interesting. It shows he's got a bit of a a soft side, though. He's in the helicopter in the book that blows up the raft guys trying to escape at the beginning. And he actually forces the pilot to issue the warning before hmm. the pilot shoots. The pilot was apparently going to just shoot. And Hauk says, no, no, give him a warning first. And the novel describes him as being disgusted by the police force, which is made up of bloodthirsty war veterans called Black Bellies. And he's sick. He's just sick of it all, which it's interesting that he's the warden of the prison because you'd think he'd quit. Um, I didn't having not actually read the book, just picking up summaries online. uh, I don't know if that's delved into or not. So it's interesting that he comes across as this real hard ass. Yet the book, when getting into his characterization, takes a bit of that hard edge off. I feel like he's kind of a Nick Fury character in a way. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that's a that's a, a good parallel. So they walk into the control room. They are told that there's a small jet in trouble. And I, I, that line I just wanted to call out because in another minute or two, we'll talk about that jet. And it's just interesting to me that the jet they are talking about is called a small jet because I don't consider the plane that we're going to be discussing another minute or two. <laughs> when I think of that plane in real life, I don't think of it as a small jet. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it's funny that they they too are being very coy about it because when that jet makes an appearance now, everybody knows about it. And actually, this communications guy they're talking to, uh, incredibly enough, much like happens in some of these movies, this this guy's we've got some good stuff about this guy. Uh, he's uh, the character is just referred to as controller. Uh, the actor's name is Wally Taylor. And the thing I know him most from is Clubber Lang's manager in Rocky Three. That's the Mr. T character. Yes. Uh, he also was in The Golden Child, When a Stranger Calls, Night of the Creeps with Tom Atkins, who plays Remy standing right behind him in this scene. And he's one of those guys who was in an episode of like every 1980s TV show. He was <laughs> a Knight Rider. He was in Dukes of Hazard, Hill Street Blues, 227, Moonlighting. So he's just one of those guys that made the rounds of 1980s TV. So uh, he, had, he had a nice career for himself. He, uh, this is the only scene that he's in in this movie. Well, and it is funny. Growing up in, um, in the 70s and 80s, 
it's funny now going back and watching these movies and catching guys like that where I remember him in just one show after another. He was kind of a ubiquitous face through the, the late 70s and 80s. Yep. And hey, the guy got to work with Mr. T. I mean, you can't go wrong there. That had to be amazing or completely annoying, but I would imagine <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I, I just I can't imagine, you know, what he's really like in real life. You know, Mr. T. Oh, I think that's I. I think he is exactly like he presents himself. Oh man, <laughs> I don't think he was acting on the A team. I think he was just being Mr. T. <laughs> oh, I, I think so. I think he is his character is him because yeah. he basically plays the same thing all the time. Yeah, I, I've got a friend who met him one time in a in a he was in Las Vegas, and I, I guess Mr. T was there making some sort of appearance. And stood with him at the elevator for a minute and rode up the elevator. Said he was a super nice guy, but really over the top. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can imagine him being like that all the time. Mm, yeah. I think no man who wears that level of jewelry is like a subtle dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not hiding anything. No. Well, speaking of air traffic control, uh, I tried to do a little research to see if there were any prisons that had an, any type of like air traffic control monitoring, and I couldn't find anything, and that could just be just for safety's sake. But uh, I did find uh, some interesting stats about air traffic control. Um, there are 15,000 federal air traffic controllers on the job every day at 315 FAA air traffic facilities around the country managing more than 87,000 daily flights across U.S. airspace. And then one other thing I thought was kind of interesting and probably more scary for Eric because Eric's on the East Coast, but apparently when you're looking at the flight pan for the East Coast airports, it kind of looks like a bowl of spaghetti, which was kind of concerning. But <laughs> I presume they figure all of that out. Um, I also thought it was kind of interesting uh, they were talking about if you were taking a flight from Los Angeles to Baltimore uh, based upon an actual flight plan, excuse me, let's start that again, from an FAA website, if you were on a flight from L.A. to Baltimore based on actual flight plan, the pilots would talk to 28 controllers in 11 different facilities. Yeah, so I guess as you leave each section, you're picked up by the next one in order, I guess. Yeah, so they have people that are kind of in, in relay spaces and then also within major airports as well. Yeah. He's, 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 uh, the controller's asking is talking to Bayonne flight control in this minute. So, uh, the plane obviously where is coming in over New Jersey, considering it's going to crash in a few minutes, spoiler, that <laughs> means, uh, it's getting close to Hudson river. Um, I don't know what, the New York City traffic control situation is. I kind of assume that there's one in real life. There's got to be something that based out of JFK or LaGuardia, but maybe it hadn't reached that airspace yet, or just we're in the escape from New York universe and things are different there. You know, in thinking about uh, air traffic control in prisons, you know, to uh, Alcatraz, they took the prisoners to and from the island on a boat. And I don't think I've ever read anything, and I've read some stuff about Alcatraz over the years, I don't think I've mm. ever read anything about them ever using a helicopter to get to or from the island, which is the only thing that would be able to land. You certainly couldn't land a plane on Alcatraz. It's way too small. Right. So I don't know if, you know, were Alcatraz to be in use today, would they maybe have installed a helipad so they could use a helicopter instead of only relying on a boat, and then you would have to deal with that. I don't, I don't know 
I, I'm assuming that helicopters have to also file flight plans and, and deal with air traffic control, even though they're not going way, way up like the planes are. Right. Yeah, I would presume that, too, even though they're, you know, quite small and, you know, much, much closer to the ground. Um, and, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But I feel like there's there's separate flight information for those particular, you know, aircrafts mm. for that reason. But yeah, I think that's kind of interesting that they, and, and granted, you know, I don't know that they had helicopters when Alcatraz, when did that actually get decommissioned? Was that in the 70s or was that before that? It, it was that? 1963. Yeah, it was the oh, 60s. okay. Yeah, so helicopters at that point were not, you know, they they came into use more uh, during the Korean War, but even then they were a little bit limited. By the time they closed that prison, it, you know, they were still not, what they are today by any stretch of the imagination. And I, I think you're right. I think every prisoner was probably transported on and off by boat. Uh, they may have transported dignitaries or, you know, other important people back and forth by helicopter. But, uh, and even the last few years it was there, they were ramping down the number of prisoners there. Right. Mm. So it certainly was not as important a facility the last three or four years it was open was not nearly as big as Manhattan prison. No. <laughs> no. Well, and I was thinking about that that if you if you have a prison the size of Manhattan, can you imagine the logistics of just maintaining that airspace and the the water traffic around there? Mhm. Uh, that is a monstrous I, I I mean that is a monstrous job. Yeah, I would have to assume that waterways, they must have shut them down because uh, we established um, back in the opening that the walls were actually built across the river in New Jersey and Brooklyn. So the water itself is actually contained inside the walls. Technically, it's part of the prison. So that means the Hudson River simply at some point has a wall that you're just, you know, you're not going to be using it anymore. Uh, the airspace, I would imagine they would probably treat Manhattan prison like they do downtown Washington, D.C. with the Capitol and the White House. They probably restricted airspace entirely over the prison. They probably not wouldn't allow any planes to even fly over the prison. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, kind of to your point in terms of just logistics and how many people it would take to to really control the space. I do have to give this movie a lot of credit because I, I do enjoy if I may backtrack a little bit to the beginning of this minute, how you do have a little bit longer span of time where you see Bob Houck and Remy, you know, walking into the facility and you do just get this second couple of extra seconds to, to get a sense that there's a lot happening. And just with the amount of just traffic that you see different soldiers walking through couple of like, there's a truck that rolls through, looks like almost like a fuel truck or a supply truck, you know, the couple of, you know, helicopters. And I do really just like dig this sense that you have like a slice of what this world looks like just, just in the few seconds. Cause normally I feel like with this type of scene, they wouldn't have given you that length of time for them to walk, you know, out of frame. Like it would have really like cut right straight to the, the bunker, you know, in, in kind of a traditional action movie, we'd be like trying to get right down to, to the issue in the air traffic control. So I have a sense of this that, you know, things are going off the rails all the time. 
And everybody's just kind of like, yep, it's it's another weird thing that's happening. Even though Bob's been called in because, you know, it's it, it's a thing. But, you know, nobody's really freaking out. You know, it's just really a business as usual kind of vibe. And I really I dig that about this. Yeah, well, it's, absolutely. It's, I agree. Yeah, it's an interesting way to um, move the plot along until we kind of get to the big reveal uh, in a couple of minutes. Um, so almost as an audience it does feel like a normal day uh, on the job at the prison. So, uh, well, before we end today's minute, why don't you let everyone know what your podcast is and give out where you can find you. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. Uh, I and my partner, Alan Sanders, uh, have a podcast called the Wilder ride, and we're going through the works of uh, Gene Wilder minute by minute. Uh, Season one, last year, we covered Young Frankenstein, One Minute at a Time, which still is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, comedies of all time. And this season, we were either brave enough or foolish enough to tackle Blazing Saddle. Yeah. (laughs) We've been going through Blazing Saddles One Minute at a Time. We're uh, coming close to wrapping up. We've got about 10 minutes left of uh, the actual recording time, and we've had some great guests on. So you can find us at thewilderride.com. From there, you can find our Facebook uh, page and our listeners group. Uh, We have some bonus material out there where we covered uh, Poltergeist and Christmas Vacation. Uh, You can find that on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash thewilderride. And uh, then on all the different social media platforms. Uh, Also, if you go to iTunes or any of the other places you listen to podcasts, you can hear our interview with the great Beverly D'Angelo, who's starting Christmas Vacation. Oh, nice. What? That's awesome. <laughs> she, Yeah, she is just a wonderful lady, and uh, that is a fun interview. Basically, Alan and I asked one question. She took a breath and talked for an hour, so it was really fun, and uh, <laughs> she is a total trip. And then this season, we were able to interview Burton Gilliam, who played Lyle in Blazing Saddles, and then had a part in Fletch and... Paper Moon and tons and tons of other stuff. Okay, yep, I know who he is. Yep. Yeah, the guy with a big smile. Yes, yes. And he talked to us for two hours. Wow. So we've been cutting that interview into the, the show through the season, and then at the end of the season we'll release the entire two-hour uh, interview. So that was a lot of fun, too. Cool, cool. Well, that's great. Uh, all right, well, well, we'll be back with us tomorrow uh, to continue our conversation about what's uh, what's going on up in the skies above. Uh, if you want to have a little conversation with us online, uh, we are on Facebook. Come into Brain's Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout, or go to Twitter. We are, our name is NY Minute Pod. Uh, in the meantime, if you like us, rate and review us, give us a good rating, and uh, subscribe. Make it easy to hear us every day. So until tomorrow, be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm.